this is a very difficult subject as I talk to Joe. Uh, I have spent time in preaching in God's Word since the early 70s, and so it's a lot of messages and a lot of preaching and teaching. But this is perhaps the most difficult of the messages that I have preached, and uh, I will admit to you that I've struggled with it to some degree. One of the reasons is because I know that some of you are sitting out there and you're going to hear some of the things that we're going to talk about on the subject of hell. And you're going to think about a relative, a friend, a family member, grandma, who knows, maybe an parent or even a child. And you know when they died... They died without Christ. And we have to bear in mind that there are no other alternatives apart from Christ other than hell. There's no purgatory. There's no second chance. When you deal with the issue of sin and decide to reject Christ, reject his offer of grace and forgiveness, you have assigned yourself to a place in hell. And in my studies this past week over that particular subject, dealing not with the subject from just the standpoint of doctrine or theology, but actually getting into the very words that our Lord Jesus uses in describing hell and what hell is like, it was extremely unnerving to me. And in all my studies and all my teaching and all my reading of Scripture over the years, I don't think I've ever plowed into these words as deeply as I did for this message. And uh, as I said, it was at the very least disconcerting. And I'm no different than any of you. I have people that I have known and loved and cared about over the years that I know are not home with the Lord. And when we say that, we like to say, well, they're not home with the Lord. Or we use terms like, they're lost. Or they died without Christ. Or, well, we really feel bad about all this. But we don't get into any real detail. We don't really get into what it amounts to to be living in this horrific, almost incomprehensible, painful situation. And when you look at some of the words that Jesus used as he describes this terrible, terrible place, it's worse than we might even imagine. And we, that's why we use kind of bland expressions. Well, they were lost, or they didn't go home to be with the Lord, or just this, these kind of innocuous comments, because it enables us to avoid dealing with the real issues, that hell is a place of almost incomprehensible, in fact, I will go far as, far as to say incomprehensible suffering. We can't imagine it. 
And as I have looked at these passages, I have thought about this in ways that, I'll be honest with you, as old as I am, and believe me, I'm, I'm old, uh, and as long as I've been preaching and teaching and pastoring churches, uh, I, I don't know that I've really ever looked at it as deeply as I did this past week and uh, extremely unsettling. I also want you to know that I don't say these things glibly. I don't say these things without being sensitive to the fact that perhaps some of you will leave here and the suffering you've already endured at the loss of a loved one who doesn't know the Lord Jesus is even going to be worse. But let me remind you of something. The subject of hell is not the subject of some personal philosophy or ideology of mine or Joe's or Abner's or Chris or Pastor MacArthur's or any of the leadership in our church. For me to try to water down or make Jesus' words more acceptable would be to compromise his word. This is his word. This isn't mine. This is his teaching. And we are not in a position, none of us, to say anything or present anything in a way that would sound like an apology for what Jesus has clearly delivered to us in the scriptures. Hell is a hard and harsh reality of the end of any life that has not been transformed spiritually by the power and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are no options. There's no middle ground, as I said. You are either in the family of God and part of his family, and you're going to go home and be where he is, or you're going to go to a place of misery that is almost inexplicable. And there's no other way to say it. There's no other way. You cannot compromise it. And I think there are two reasons that we have so much difficulty with accepting this. We hear all the time people saying, well, if God is a God of love, how could he send somebody to such a place like this? But the reason we stumble and the reason we have these problems is because two things. We don't take sin seriously, and we don't take God's holiness seriously. And we focus on many other things having to do with Scripture. We talk about unity this morning. Our pastor talked about the importance of unity. The subject of hell has been a subject that has created disunity in the church because of people who claim to know the Lord, but yet do not want to accept what the Scriptures say about this terrible place that unsaved people go. This doctrine is not something we like to talk about. So Jesus warns us in Matthew chapter 10, and uh, looking at verse 28, Jesus is speaking here in the 28th verse. He's been talking about the meaning of discipleship, what it means to be a follower of his. And you're reminded in other places of Scripture, it says you must take up your cross 
which, by the way, taking up your cross doesn't mean that you, got, that you have cancer or you're struggling with some disease or whatever. Taking up your cross is a command. It's something that you voluntarily give up certain freedoms for his sake. You, you make the sacrifice, demonstrating the genuineness of your love for him. As Abner has said on the evening, you embarked upon a life of pursuit, pursuing the Lord, embracing, accepting, and accepting his words as absolute and ultimate truth. So a disciple, he says in verse 24, is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. Not enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household? And then he goes on, and then he says, Do not fear them. There is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. For I tell you, in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. There's no longer any mysteries. All being revealed in the New Testament, as we've heard this morning. Then in verse 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That is the reality. Scriptures tell us that it was the Lord Jesus who created hell for his Satan and his demons. It's interesting that when you look at the Old Testament, you don't find any detailed descriptions of hell. They talk about Sheol, they talk about the place of the dead. But some of these terms are read in a rather rather broad and general manner. It's when we come to the New Testament and hear the very words of Christ himself that we have the issues that we have already alluded to detailed out for us. And the reason for that is that no one knew and understand the elements and what is involved in hell except the one who created it. And he came to earth in the form of a man and proclaimed to us the alternative that faces all those who reject the message of grace, the message of love, the message of salvation. Uh, Hell is the consequence that the unsaved person will suffer apart from Christ. Uh, He warned us repeatedly in the Gospels. And when the Bible says we need to fear God, it doesn't, of course, mean for a believer that you fear him in a, in a horrible, terrible, groveling way. It means you fear him, you fear his power. You fear him, the creator of the heavens and the earth, who spoke everything into existence by the word of his mouth, who controls all things, sovereign over all things, sovereign over your life and over my life, the absolute God and there is no other. To fear him in a way that's proper, in a way that's respectful, in a way that's honoring to him, not in a groveling sense. 
But we also fear him because we know he has the power to accept or reject based on our response to the gospel message of Christ. Sometimes a, a popular view among some who claim salvation in Christ is that God, again, is too loving, too kind, too good to send anyone to hell. And yet God in his justice, we hear so much about justice today. All over the tube, they're talking about justice. They don't have a clue what justice is all about. As R.C. Sproul said one time, if you're praying, don't ever ask God for justice. You don't want justice because justice means you go to a place of condemnation for eternity. You deserve hell. And we have to come to grips with that simple fact. God's justice demands that if you reject his message of salvation that you go to hell. His holiness demands it. And because we don't understand that, we don't accept that, we come up with these theories, useless, empty theories. Oh, how could a God of love send anyone to hell? Nonsense. He wouldn't be God if he didn't. Others in the church have tried to turn verses that speak of hell into allegories, and I want to say there's no such thing in the Bible. There's no allegories. Illustrations, yes, but not allegories. You want to read an allegory, read Pilgrim's Progress. And as wonderful a book as that is, John Bunyan was not inspired. Or they take words like fire that are used expressly in Scripture to describe the terrible pain and suffering that fire brings and uh, that are used to, uh, they're used, they say, well, that express alienation. And they accept that part, but they don't want to really get into the fact that it really means fire. When it says fire, it means fire, literal fire. You can't make anything else out of the word. Fire means fire. And if any of you have ever been burnt, you know that there is perhaps no suffering greater than to have your skin burned. It's the greatest pain of, of all. Still others, and these, and I, and I even have some commentaries at home by men who are wonderful, godly men. I mean, I have read their commentaries and their comments on Scripture verses and stuff over the years uh, in my library, and uh, over a period of time, their study has brought them to a place where they now are committed to a thing called annihilism. They have this idea, and it's completely invented. But the unrepentant sinner will suffer for a while, but eventually they will just simply cease to exist. The idea of continually suffering forever is beyond the scope of their willingness to accept it or embrace it. And that's a shame. And I'm not going to mention the names of some of these, a couple of these guys because they do have excellent commentaries. They have excellent things to say. But in this particular venue, they are unable to handle the information that is clearly revealed in Scripture. And so falling victim to sentimentalism, they reject the idea of suffering forever. And believe me, that is nowhere taught in Scripture. 
Some believe that you'll go through some kind of mental suffering, but not physical suffering, and certainly not a place of literal fire. And then there are, there are those who believe and are committed to the doctrine of universalism. They believe that eventually everyone will be saved. And I have read that in some cases they believe that they will be saved against their will. Again, these are people groping in a very dark place for some answer to an issue that is clearly revealed, but they cannot accept. And because they can't accept it, they come up with ideas and fantasies that do away with the subject. I attended a funeral service once for a police police officer. Some of you know I was in law enforcement for a few decades, and and I he had been shot. He died, and his wife was able to speak at the funeral. It was amazing to me that she was even able to do that. But her comments were, and I'll never forget them, as I stood there and listened. Well, he's up there in heaven smoking cigars and playing poker and having a beer with his buddies. <laughs> you know, our focus needs to be the Scriptures, not wishful thinking. Now, I admit, I, I didn't feel any animosity toward her, any angst against her. She was suffering horribly for the unexpected death of a very young man who, if he'd have lived a normal life, he probably would have even approached my age. <laughs> That's impossible. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I, I just shook my head, in, partially in disbelief, but also in sorrow, because I knew enough about him to know that he definitely was not home with the Lord. Dealing with a subject... Difficult and painful, but it's a reality, and we need to face it. Hopefully, the subject will make us more energetic in our evangelism because we realize to a greater degree what awaits unsaved people. But I also realize when I say that, we can't bring anyone to Christ. I know we say that, we use those terms. Years ago, I was involved in the evangelism explosion program when it first broke free from uh, the pastor in Florida that came up with that, and, and the church we were attending at that time, we got involved in it. And there was a time when I honestly thought that the force of my words would bring someone to Christ, but I soon learned otherwise. The only one that can bring anybody to Christ is the Lord Jesus. He says, you, you cannot come to me unless my Father first draws you. That's a simple statement. But still, we have our part in this. He said, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we have our part to play, and we need to do this with a context of a reality that when you're talking to someone about the Lord Jesus, the reality is that you know what awaits them if they reject the message. And hopefully it will bring an intensity and a fervor to your words that the Lord will use in a mighty way. Paul, God even told Paul, moving to a certain city in Acts, he says, no, I don't want you to go here, Paul. I want you to go there because I have many people in this city. 
Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, uh, says that your names are written in the book of life from the foundations of the world. Your salvation was determined by the Lord God before you were ever even born. Paul, as we heard this morning, even from Galatians, that Paul said he was set apart from his mother's womb. A number of your days are written in God's book. Your salvation is also recorded there. And that's why some people respond to the gospel and other people don't. So I understand that, but it doesn't alleviate us from the responsibility of sharing Christ with the lost as energetically and as powerfully and as accurately and as concisely as we possibly can. The second thing is, and perhaps for many of us even more importantly, it reminds us of this time of thanksgiving uh, the, what we need to be thankful for as to what Christ has delivered us from being our substitution, suffering this horrible death that we should have suffered. He suffered in our place and making us more grateful, more thankful, and make us realize when, when he says, take up your cross, you'll do it not only voluntarily, but willingly and with excitement and energy. And in his strength and his power, John 15, 5 says, apart from him, you can do nothing, reminding us of that fact and coming to him and asking him for help and strength because you so much want to please him. You so much want to serve him. You so much want to minister in his name for his glory. And you want to do that because you're reminded, and hopefully from this message and from some of the things we're going to say, of what you have been delivered from. And when the Lord looks at you, a saved person, <laughs> he doesn't look at you like he wasted his time because you're sitting around, sits, you, you come here and hear good sermons, you sit soaking sour, and, and you accomplish and don't do anything. Or like James says, you look at yourself in a mirror and then go away and forget what you've seen. You know, God didn't save you just to deliver you from heaven and deliver you from hell. He just saved you to change you. We need to remember that. But thankfulness, evangelism and thankfulness. Uh, R.C., and, and I've mentioned R.C. many times, and, and I don't mean to exalt him in any way, shape, or form. He was just a brilliant man who loved the Lord, and he's home in heaven. And, and so I don't know why his name always comes up. <laughs> I used to go to his years ago. For years, Janie and I would go down to... San Diego, where he would have these conferences. And boy, he had great conferences. The food was wonderful. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and, but the word was even better. I heard some wonderful, wonderful godly men, James Boyce and R.C. and, and uh, another fellow there, but I, he's kinda, he was kind of grouchy. I'm not going to mention him. But anyway, uh, just some wonderful words of truth. And, and you know our pastor loved R.C. and spoke at his funeral. And, and so please don't misunderstand me when I quote these guys. But I have to quote some of them. They're a whole lot smarter than I am, and I don't have much to say if I, if I don't mention some of the things they said. But he reminds us that while the Bible does use the term salvation in many ways, the common thread that is found in many, in many of its uses is that at its root, Salvation means being rescued or delivered from some calamity or catastrophe. 
And so when, many times when you read, and we're not going to go through all those texts and the, the, the nuances or the shadings of meaning, but the overarching meaning is that you are being, in salvation, you have been delivered from a catastrophe that awaits every single person who goes into the earth without Christ. What we want to demonstrate morning, this morning is what those realities are that we face. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 through 10, Paul writes this to the church of Thessalonica, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven. Listen, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. And if you want to read about God's wrath being poured out on, on, on the unsaved, all you have to do is open up Revelation and read chapter 6 through 19, and you will get a heartful, mindful. Uh, some of you attend uh, Fraser's Bible study on, on Revelation, and uh, you know that Greg is very, very precise, a very excellent teacher and if you want to get a, a good look at what it means to suffer under God's wrath, boy, you, you look at those chapters in Revelation. You know, the amazing thing about that is our pastor talking about mysteries this morning. There's no mystery about this. Jesus doesn't hide any of this. You know, our schools and colleges today, uh, kids are being taught to uh, be little snowflakes. You know, we don't want to offend anybody. And as a result... The, the, the journalists and, and the news media doesn't have any option but then to lie because you can't tell people the truth and not offend. It's impossible, absolutely impossible. And if you want to be friends with everybody, well, that's not going to happen either. The truth is monumental. It, it is what must guide us and direct us in every phase of our life. And there's only one place to find absolute truth, and that's in the Scriptures, and that's where you go to, and you keep your mind and heart riveted on those Scriptures. You pray daily, you talk to the Lord daily, and you seek Him, and you, as, as I said earlier, Abner pointed out, you pursue Him. As I've told many people in my Bible studies, when it comes to prayer, you're not going to find time. You have to make time. Part of your day. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation, deliverance, through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's it. There's no other. No other name under heaven. That's it, Acts 4.12. The wrath noted here in both passages refers to God's eternal wrath against sin. And when I was first growing up, as a, I grew up, I've been in church all my life. I grew up a Baptist. But the popular tone was in those days, and I'm going back now to the 40s and 50s, which some of you can't even, 40s and 50s, that's this century? Uh, but you, 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 you hate the sin, but you love the sinner. Well, let me tell you, it's a sinner that's going to suffer in hell, not some ideology. Those who die without Christ, who die in their sins, die without forgiveness through the, through the fact sacrifice he offers will suffer his eternal wrath. 
John chapter 3, verse 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. You know, there's a lot to fear in this world. And we hear about these new strains of COVID and everybody's all excited and, you know, we're hearing the good doctor tell us how we're supposed to live now. He's, he's the boss. He's the, you know, the little dictator. Uh, I'll tell you what we need to fear is death and hell. That's what we need to fear. And let me reassure you, your name was written in the book of life for the foundation of the world. Your name, uh, David even wrote in Psalm 139, the number of my days is with thee. Even the number of days that you have on this earth, that's all been done and recorded. It's over. You're not going to go one minute before it's your time. And when it's your time, you're going to go no matter what you do. You can take shots and wear masks and jump up and down and make all kinds of crazy claims, but it's not going to change a thing. God is sovereign over your life and how long you're going to be here. But anyway, there's no extra charge for that information. That's not part of the message. But <clears throat> Jesus said, again, then, do not fear them who can kill the body, but those, but he who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Jesus went on to say, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Well, what, what did Jesus actually tell us about hell? Well, Matthew 25, 11 says he created hell for the devil and his angels, but also for those who reject his offer of grace, forgiveness of sin, his wrath. Luke chapter 16, we look at some of these issues that we have alluded to, but we need to talk about them. Luke chapter 16, verse 19 uh, you read these words. You remember the story in Luke about the rich man and Lazarus. And there, verse 19 said there was a rich man, he habitually dressed in purple, fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. Now, I want to make something very clear here. These scriptures do not support socialism. Just because somebody's got a few bucks in their pocket doesn't mean they're evil. Okay, this is what you're being told. This is what your kids are being taught in schools. Some people God gives a lot of money to so they can be generous and be gracious and help churches like Grace Community reach out to the world. Money itself is not evil. It's when you've given your life over to it and you allow it to govern your life, guide your life, and direct your life. That's the problem. It's the love of money. But money is just a tool. And, and the one in whose hands it belongs is God's hands. When you give your money and your resources, however big or however small they are, over to him, that he would direct you in how you use it, that's the issue. And nothing contributes more to freedom, political freedom, than capitalism. Matter of fact, you go to the bookstore, there's a whole book written about it. If you have any doubts, you ought to go get it. Maybe later on I'll remember the name of it, but anyway. 
But a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, longing to be fed with crumbs. So they're comparing these two. And certainly we've seen a lot of that lately, and it is a tragic thing, of course. We, we know that. The poor man died, carried away to the angels, Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he left up his eyes, being in torment. He saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his his bosom, and he cried out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in what agony in this flame. That's the first thing that we need to look at here. Uh, Jesus said that hell is a place where the worm will never die, right? And the fire will never go out. That's because there will always, listen, always going to be food for the worm because this time goes on forever and ever and ever. The the worm will always have food because you're always going to be there for that worm to feed on. And the fire will never go out because there will always be fuel And the unrepentant sinner's body is the fuel. It will go on and on and on forever. And this pain he's talking about is a terrible pain of anguish, suffering that is beyond any sense of normalcy. It is at a level of pain that is unbearable, a pain level that is without parallel. So great it cannot even be compared with the minor pains that by comparison we suffer today. Although the pain we suffer today should serve as a warning to unbelievers that if the pain you're suffering today, and some of you have issues of suffering, some of you have physical pain, and uh, I know as I grow older, I've got aches and pains around that I didn't know I even had those body parts, and, and, and now they're all, they don't know, seem not to what to do. They act all kind of funny and act stupid. I don't understand. They don't obey me like they used to. But the fact of it is, it's a warning to us. It's a warning to unbelievers. And he's saying, I just want my tongue, just, just, just to touch, just a drop of water on my tongue uh, to help alleviate me in this scorching flame. And some of you who have know what it is to be burnt, you know how terrible it is. But the other thing is that Abraham responds and says, there's a chasm, there's, there's a gulf between us that cannot be passed. Again, taking away any nonsense about Catholicism's belief in purgatory. There's a chasm. It cannot be passed. There is no second chance. There is no purgatory. And there is no help coming. None. You're not only helpless, it's hopeless. It is the most tragic thing in the experience that anyone could possibly even imagine. It goes beyond the scope of our understanding. Dante in, in his Inferno, some of you remember, uh, I know none of us lived when he did, but back in the 1300s in Italy, we have some Italians down here that, I'm sure you've read Dante a few times. Uh, just as a tribute to a good Italians, right? Yes, okay. But in his, 
work, he said this in his inferno, where he describes hell. It's a journey he's on. And uh, he wrote it, I think, 1300s. But he said, there's a sign over the gate to hell. All hope abandon ye who enter here. Now, his words aren't inspired, but they certainly capture what's going on in hell. All hope abandon. Give it up. Is there none coming over the gate of hell? In Luke chapter 13, verse 28, we come to grips with some other words. Uh, in Luke chapter 13, verse 28, Jesus says this. He talks about that uh, verse 27, he said, I tell you, do not, you do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers, evildoers. In that place there will be, and he's talking now about hell. He says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And of course, he's saying something there against, about the Jews, their rejection of him. And the people that should have enjoyed God's presence rejected that. And you yourselves, he said, being thrown out. But the, what I want to focus on, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. The weeping it could also amount to howling. Uh, a howling and a weeping and a cry that if we were to hear it would literally send a chill up our spines. Uh, and the gnashing of teeth, it's almost, it's like the burying of teeth in, all, in absolute despair, curling back the lips and just gritting the teeth, burying the teeth, gnashing the teeth, and howling in extreme pain, and also in rage, unrelenting torment, continually writhing in pain. And believe me, these folks aren't going to repent. There's nothing in Scripture that says these people are going to repent in hell. The agony of hell is only going to intensify their hatred toward God who put them there because of their rejection and their lack of faith. And if you have a tendency to want to apologize to someone for these words, remember, you're apologizing for the Lord God who saved you from these things. We have no right to apologize for God's word. He is giving a clear, demonstrative word here of what is going to happen if you reject his offer. The howling, the baring of the teeth, the rage, and that this torment is unrelenting. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 42, uh, coming up with some other words, uh, Jesus says this, well, verse 41, the Son of Man will send forth his angels. They will gather out, his, out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and all those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the fire, furnace of fire. In that place, they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So again, he reiterates this wailing, this howling, and this overpowering sense of agony and hopelessness and rage. 
against the one who put them there. These are sounds and expressions that go beyond anything that we know and experience here in the earthly realm. These are images of utter despair. They're grotesque. They're frightening. And the other factor, when you turn back to Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, we see something else here. And that is, the sons of the king, in verse 12 of Matthew chapter 8, it said, the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. Outer darkness. I don't know if any of you have ever come home on a very dark night, a stormy night, a cloudy night where there's no moon and the power's gone out in your house and you're groping around trying to find a light switch and you find one, it doesn't work, and you're, you're immersed in this inky blackness. And then you hear a sound over in the corner. And you come about three feet off the floor. And then you realize it's a cat trying to find a way around in there. But the darkness here is so intense. What's described here is an inky darkness that's so intense, it's like it's something physical that actually clings to you. And you can't see anything. You can't see anywhere. There's not even a small ray of light. You can't orient yourself. And you're lost in this absolute and total darkness, and you are completely alone. There's no one to share this with you. No one to offer you support or encouragement. You're completely alone. And then finally, and we won't turn there, but in Revelation chapter 9, verse 1, Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 and 2, it describes hell as a bottomless pit, an abyss. No bottom. I don't know if you understand what being able to walk on earth or being able to walk on something solid, how it, it, it uh, helps to encourage us regarding support and security. But can you imagine being in this terrible place of pain in absolute and total darkness, you're completely by yourself, and then when you try to thrash around to try to find something to put your feet on, something to rest on, to give you some sense of security, there's nothing I remember once when I was in Israel and I was, I don't remember if it was with Bookman or Varner, I don't know which one I was with now, but it was too long ago. But I, I, I had decided that when this, I was going to swim in all the major bodies, the Red Sea, uh, the Dead, Dead Sea and, and Galilee. And uh, we were staying overnight at the, See a Galilee. Well, I got up early before anybody else did and jumped in and to fulfill my promise to myself. I said to myself, self, you're going to do this. <laughs> so we did it. Well, I swam out a little ways and I got a cramp. And uh, I was thrashing around and trying not to get panicky and uh, trying to find some I was desperately trying to find the bottom, but I realized I was over my head. I'd gone out too far. And I thought, oh, this is great. I can hear my wife now on the other end of the line. Well, I'm sorry, Mrs. Spear, but your husband won't be coming home. We buried him at sea, and this is a Neptune society. And so we want you to uh, just, you're going to have to accept this. We're sorry. And uh, all these thoughts going through your mind. And then all of a sudden, as I'm grappling and, and trying to get, 
I felt something under my feet. And I can't tell you how wonderful it was <laughs> after going through this to finally, oh, I made it. I, I got sand. I got dirt. I got earth under my feet. I'm not going to drown after all. Uh, so when you have that sense where there's nothing under you, there's no sense of, of anything solid, and then add to that the fact this is forever. Bringing the sufferer to a state of physical, spiritual, and mental collapse. There's no medication. There's no doctors. There's no pastor. Not even your parents. And most importantly, not even the Lord Jesus Christ. What we must do now is we think about these things, and I think we've said enough. There's this doctrine, I hope, or these factors that we've mentioned here and and we need to quit. And believe me, I want to quit. Uh, I'm not taking any joy or any pleasure out of bringing these things. It's just that I know that's what the Lord has wanted me to do for whatever reason, and he's laid it on my heart, and I'm not going to apologize for anything that we've said because it's his word, not mine. But I am, I have struggled with this. But I hope it will have a positive effect that God takes our sins seriously and he takes his holiness seriously and realize that evil deserves eternal punishment in hell. And that doesn't just mean Adolf Hitler. That just doesn't mean the Nazi party and all those terrible people in, in Italy and in, in Germany in the 30s and 40s. Every one of us is affected by sin. Every one of us. And total depravity doesn't mean that we're all bad as we could be. It means that every part that makes up the human organism is affected by sin, and the potential is there. And we deserve this. And it's not going to bring repentance. We must learn to hate sin, that it must offend us, and it also must mean we don't tolerate it. We hate it as he hated it. And second, it would make us greater, stronger, more confirmed witnesses to the truth and the sin that destroys and the marvelous Savior who delivered us from it by his saving grace he suffered for us. You know, we'll quit here, but there's two places in Scripture where the word marveled or wondered is used. One is when the centurion told Jesus, you don't have to come to my house to heal my servant. Just say the word and you'll be healed. And the Bible says Jesus marveled and wondered. He said, never in all of Israel have I seen faith such as this. And the second time he uses it is when he wondered, is when after all he said and done, they did not believe And he wondered and marveled at their unbelief. Positively, Matthew 8.10. Negatively, Mark 6.6. The issue of faith. Hebrews 11, verse 6 says, apart from faith, we cannot please him. We cannot please him. And let me just say that after saying all this today, that if you have not come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ by faith, 
repenting of your sin, acknowledging and understanding the terrible weight of sin that you bear and that you carry, that Jesus came and died on the cross to deliver you from that sin, to take that weight away and bring you into his kingdom. As he told his disciples, that where I am, you may also, because that's really the issue. That you want to be where he is. And I've said this before, it isn't streets of gold and palaces. It's wanting to be where Jesus is. That's what we want more than anything else. And when you pray, asking the Lord God to create in you a hatred for what he hates and a love for what he loves, that your heart might beat one with his heart. And the world may look out and see the living Christ in you and hear the words that he has given to warn us of the dangers and the terrible place that awaits all those who who reject his offer of grace and salvation. Let's pray. Father, we th- we're thankful for your word. Lord, as painful as this is, and I know it's probably more painful for some than others, uh, some just can't bring themselves to listen to this, this word, and, and uh, Lord, I understand that. It's been, it's been difficult, difficult in preparation, difficult in delivery. It's just a difficult subject. We have lived in a country that has given us so much comfort and so much of everything we want that it's hard for us to accept the fact of the reality that hell awaits unbelievers. We've been softened by the life we've had here in America for all these years. And facing this kind of harshness is, is just incredible. We, 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 just, some of us, we just can't do it. We can't do it without your help, Lord. We can't do it without your spiritual help without your strengthening of us and without changing us, Father, where we have a greater and greater love for your holiness and a greater hatred for sin and a greater love for those who are lost that you might move us to present the gospel message to them in the hopes that their names are written in the book of life and they will come to you and be spared this terrible place. Thank you now for your word. Thank you, Father, for all that you do for us on a daily basis, your protection, your provision, your preservation of us, and the way you have blessed the leadership of this church and our pastor and the people who attend here, Lord. How grateful we are. Well, thank you, Lord, for this day and for this time now. Strengthen us with your word. Guide us through this day. And be with Abner tonight as he brings your precious word to us. In Jesus' most holy name we pray. Amen.